Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We're going to be reading and studying verses 43 through the end of the chapter this morning. So John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning in verse 43. That after the two days that he had been in Sychar, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to Jesus and asked him to come down and heal his son, for his son was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go. Your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. To pray with me. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We do pray that it would be living and active as it really is to each one of us this morning. May we hear it not just as the word of a man, but as it really is the word of God. We ask it for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I venture to say that for a majority of Americans, Uh, Most decisions we make from day to day aren't exactly a matter of life and death. Maybe of life, 
maybe, of life. Some of you are in the midst of critical decisions today that will affect the overall trajectory of your lives. But seldom, it seems, does life and death hang in the balance of your decisions. Seldom are we in the hourly desperation that many others around the world do face and will sooner or later greet us also. And I wonder then if that's not had some kind of detrimental impact upon our souls, if it hasn't tempted us to a rather comfortable or laissez-faire approach to spiritual things, as if our situation, secure as it is in Christ, is no longer desperate in any way at all. And so we approach Christ, and we approach His Word, and we approach faith in His Word, as if it were all in good fun, or merely the subject of our curiosity, or something we only leverage to get to something that is more marvelous in our eyes, or maybe it's just that it's, it's all just old hat, I know all that stuff already, so pay no attention to the ear mufflers that I have on this morning. Dear ones, I want to tell you, where any of that is the case, we really have missed the mark. We've misunderstood our situation, I would say. We've let one thing or another callous our souls to the truth that deciding moment to moment to take Jesus at His word once and then for all time is a matter of life and death. And not just temporally, but eternally. And just so, how ought our approach to His word change? We would do well. We would all do well to realize and or reaffirm just how desperately we need to elevate and then to believe the word of Christ. And so also the Christ of that word again. I tell you, it really is not as straightforward as just opening up a Bible in a church service. No, beloved, we must open it to bank, to bank the full import of our immortal souls upon all it says, upon all Christ has said, and upon everything that he has done. All right, to our text, here we go. We want to begin by considering Jesus. We know he's the Christ. Three offices are usually attributed to Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. This morning we want to consider Jesus in his prophetic office. And we begin there because in verse 44, if you look there, Jesus had taught his disciples what? That a a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. And the prophet that he speaks of right there is none other than himself. And yet John has made it plain that as that title is applied to Jesus, something much, much more is meant than that Jesus is a mere prophet. John's made sure that the dust can can never really settle right there as it relates to Jesus. It is in fact to preempt that kind of settling that the gospel begins the way it does by telling us that Jesus is the Word of God in the flesh which makes him not only quite distinct from everybody else, but utterly unique amongst prophets. You see, it means that all the prophets of old spoke by the Spirit of Christ about one person, and that person was Jesus. 
It means that he's the sum goal and the sum focus of biblical and general revelation. It means that Moses and Elijah down to little old Obadiah. No one ever reads Obadiah, but he's in the Bible. Some of you are like, who is Obadiah? Okay, he's a prophet. All these guys laid their prophetic lamps at Jesus' feet, whose light by comparison was like the noonday sun. It means, if I can turn my page here, that God's got nothing more to say. And God's got nothing more He needs say than what He has already said in Jesus. Christ and Him crucified, that is God's magnum opus. I mean, you know Daniel, Prophet Daniel, we're all familiar with Daniel, all right? Uh, Daniel would speak a divine word or two by the Spirit. That's why we have the book of Daniel. But once he was done speaking in that prophetic office, he might have been talking with Shadrach and uh, uh, you know, uh, Meshach and Abednego, all the guys about their fantasy football draft later on that night. And maybe Jesus did that too. But if he did, it was never as a mere man. What I mean is, every word Jesus spoke... And every deed Jesus did, whether we have it recorded in Scripture or not, was a word and deed of God in the flesh. See? He was never off duty in His prophetic office. He was all the time divine, we're just saying, revelation. There's a reason that God the Father told us to listen to Jesus as Moses and Elijah faded out of the picture. There's a reason that the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, dear ones, is to confirm and then amplify, magnify all that Jesus taught and lived and left to us in Scripture. Yes, Jesus is a prophet. But man, He is more than a prophet. He's the Word. And not just in the sense that he's the perfect picture of the invisible God, but also, as we've seen throughout John already, in that he's the perfect perceiver of what is thought to be invisible in man. Recall how he knew Peter. Oh, so you're Peter. (laughs) Remember how he saw Nathaniel before Nathaniel even knew who he was. Remember how he discerned the very soul, the state of the soul of Nicodemus. And he did this again with the Samaritan woman. And remember how for her salvation, he brought her sins to light, which she herself really did not even know. And how all of this was known to him before he'd ever met any of them. Recall how Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him about man because Jesus knew what was in. Not just man in general, but it says all people. He knew what was in all people. So, in John's time with Jesus, it seems there never was a soul that Jesus didn't know perfectly. Like God, He saw beneath what we put out for viewing to the truth within our hearts, the secrets we prefer to keep just so, the bareness of who we really are and all we've ever done. One person said this some time ago, that that a person is who they are before God and nothing more. Like whoever you are before God, that's you. 
And that is equally the case with respect to Jesus. Who you are before Christ, that's who you are. And nothing more. He is this prophet par excellence. And now the fallout for us. The fallout for us, no less the whole world, is then a matter of life and death and beyond it. A lot could be said, but we'll just settle for things in the main here. One thing is that this means we cannot know God savingly apart from faith in Jesus. I mean, there is much that we can learn about God from a flower. There's all kinds of things that we can learn about God from a prophet like Hosea. There's all kinds of things that we can learn about God by having much saintly talk, discussion, dialogue, conversation. But if you would be reconciled to God, if you'd be saved from your sins, if you'd be raised from death of soul, if you'd be converted and fitted for another world, if you would know God like that, you must see Jesus and love Jesus and trust Jesus and take Jesus at His word. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Just think then. Think. How can one say they know God if they reject the one that God sent precisely to make Himself known? But further, let's say that by the grace of God you've come to to love Jesus. You've come to entrust your soul in life and death to His invincible safekeeping. And the conversation shifts from from being reconciled to God to then walking with God. From from saving faith to the obedience that always tags along. We want to please our Heavenly Father, don't we, as Christians? Well then, the matter is no different. It's all the same. You must take Christ at His word. You must count it as the love and lamp of your life. Above all the noise of novel theological ideas, oh my, how there are so many today. Above all the noise of trumpets, of cultural conformity, above the whistles of sin and the the loud whispers of our own deceptive hearts, above all our pride, above all our, our viral wants, even above the wisdom of the wise and the most trustworthy of saints. We must listen to Jesus. Pleasing God insists on giving Christ's word the throne of our souls. Beloved, David was a man after God's own heart. Abraham was the father of faith. Esther was a deft orchestrator for the cause of God and His people. Isaiah was this magisterial prophet, Peter, the great confessor. Some of you know Jan Sherrod as the great rebucinator. And each, and each, as the best of saints will do, would fail you in some great respect, whether by immorality or passivity or conformity, a dirty mouth or a cowardly heart, as a discipler at some point. 
But Jesus, never. Theoretically, if you were to follow Jesus lock and step, theoretically, you would never go astray from what's pleasing to the Father. Oh, if only. One day, and how glorious a day that will be, may it hurry to us. But even as we wait, we need to have a mind to be trained for it. To give to Christ the honor due His prophetic office. But how do we, how do, we do that? How do we do that? Or as he says, he has no honor in his own hometown. We might ask, how can we prove to be a true home for Jesus? How can we prove to be a house of Christ indeed? Isn't that what we want to be? Okay, well, let's come to consider two ways to not be that. To dishonor Christ. And we'll learn by the contrast. So, One way to dishonor Christ related to his prophetic office, still riffing off of verse 44 here, is to knock Jesus because you know Jesus. Wait, Brian, that does not sound right. I know. (laughs) Just hear me out. Uh, It seems you can be so familiar with Jesus that Jesus begins to lose face with you. Over time, his glory gets dusty. His radiance loses its shine. He's just one of the guys. And if we're not careful to guard against that, it can become difficult, really difficult, to honor Jesus as the Christ prophet that he is. I imagine this scenario for the folks in Galilee. They'd known little Joshua. Since he was a boy, Jesus, that messed you up, Joshua. They'd maybe babysat him from time to time. Maybe taught him in Sabbath school. Watched him grow up. Knew him well as the child of Mary and Joseph. And then all of a sudden, he stands up amid this synagogue in Nazareth in Galilee. He takes the word of God by the prophet Isaiah. He reads it and says, This text about the Spirit-anointed Christ is fulfilled in your hearing. I am He. <laughs> oh my goodness. And they just can't believe it. They can't believe it. They must believe it, but they just can't. lady in the first row used to change his diapers. Guy in the back has them on order for a new dinner table. And they're just supposed to take him at his word? That he's the savior of the world? That he's to be trusted and followed at all cost? Absolutely. But they know him so well. Or at least they think they do. But see, it's their relative familiarity and proximity to him that's hardened their hearts to him. Now, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But sadly, that is the way it too often is. I have a friend from seminary who's risen quickly through the ranks of trustworthy 
scholarship. It's not all trustworthy. His is. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> he just published his magnum opus to date on the book of Acts. Great commentary, 750 pages. Go get it. Anyway, I see it. I see that commentary. I see it on Amazon and all these things. And because I know him, or because I knew him in his youth while he was more or less a fun-loving wise guy, uh, it is not without great difficulty for me to see through all of that and give him the honor of a top-notch biblical academician. Nevertheless, that's what he is. And I do well to give him the honor, do his mind and his character and his labor and his achievement and his overall person. But, but this is just kind of what we do as people, isn't it? We cannot long handle extraordinary things without them becoming rather ordinary. We can't long handle holy things without them losing their shine, without them seeming rather maybe even unholy to us. And just so the hometown of Jesus was no home to him because they knew him. They'd been around him. And for all they saw of him, they eventually assumed him to be an imposter to their faith and to their way of living. I mean, how blind and dull they were. And we're to be exhorted here. Do not go and be likewise. But how have we arrived? How have we arrived this morning? How do we hear his word right now? Do we say, well, goodness, I, you know, I, I've all heard that, I've heard all that before, nothing new with that one, I don't get much out of it, doesn't do a lot for me, it's not as if, what, it's true? Living, active, divine, a matter of life and death, and beyond it forever. Or is that exactly what it is for us every time we open up this Word? Do you come to His Word as Mary or as Martha? Oh, his mind flies, busy, got things to do. Are you sitting at His feet as a disciple? Do you listen to Him not just to live well, but also to die well? Do you receive Him every day as you would have at the first? Listen, it is a scary thing that familiarity with Jesus can push Him out of His home. And doubly so, that if not repented of, it can prove you and me to be foreign to His true home. Church, we are susceptible because we handle Him so much to thinking we know Christ well enough whereby we grow dull of hearing so that in favor of what we think we know, we can barely tolerate His Word when His Word comes to us, much less be taught by it with all of the eager expectancy one would expect from one of His own. We need to beware of this kind of familiarity. And equally so, 
we need to beware of what we might call flash. This word-muffling preference for the awesome and spectacular stuff, right? Not at all unrelated to Christ. Indeed, what's implied in verse 45 and then stated outright in verse 48 is that the Galileans here had no problem welcoming Jesus because they understood that he was a man of real wonders. They had gone to the feast in Jerusalem. They had heard about that wedding at Cana. That was in Galilee. They'd seen Jesus perform what we know to be messianic signs, and seeing those signs, it says they exercised a kind of faith in Jesus. But that is all the irony and burden of the passage. Yes, they welcomed him. Yes, they believed in him. But why? Because of all the spectacular things he'd done. And John's point is that insofar as it's all related to their material prosperity and entertainment, it was a hollow, shallow, and ultimately inauthentic kind of faith. Has John not already laid this warning out for us in chapter 2, verses 23 to 25? What did he say there? He said, many believed when they saw the signs that Jesus did, but that Jesus, for his own part, did not entrust himself to that kind of faith because he knew that that kind of faith was phony. He knew it was a sign, deep faith instead of a sin-deep and Savior-deep kind of faith. And that a sign-deep faith is the sort that will, we see it in the Gospels, don't we? It will quickly evaporate once those signs mount up as they were always intended to do to Calvary. Once His Word, to which all those signs played a servant role, began to be more costly for them than their penchant for flash would allow. This is critical. Along with word-muffling familiarity, this too is so much the line between biblical and cultural expressions of Christianity. A major part of John's focus in this gospel, because it was the Lord's focus throughout his time with him, is to teach us that not all faith in Jesus is saving faith in Jesus. That there is inauthentic faith, and that there is then real faith, and to make that distinction between the inauthentic and the real, very, very inescapably, God-willing, clear. The people in Jerusalem and Galilee, beloved, uh, they believed. Why? Why did they believe? They believed because of the signs. But the Samaritans, remember from a week ago, chapter 4, verse 41, why did they believe in Him? They believed because of His Word. No signs. They believed because of His Word. Friends, the greatest sign of Jesus, His fifth symphony here, was Death by crucifixion. 
followed three days later by resurrection. And after all was said and done, how many among those great crowds, great, great crowds, thousands and thousands of people trampling over each other, how many among those great crowds crowded into the upper room in Acts chapter 1? Had to be thousands, right? Nope. It says about 120 people. Three years of Christ's ministry in the world. Christ's ministry in the world. 120 people. Not even. About 120. And you know who those people were? I have an educated guess here. There were people who were preeminently devoted to the word of Christ and the Christ of that word. They were souls that counted the gospel truth as their bond and treasure. They were disciples who cared far more about faithfulness than flesh. What is the book of Acts if not the history of the sovereignty, supremacy, and spreading omnipotency of the word of Christ come what may? Dear ones, would we be a home for Jesus? It is not to cast aspersions here on sound churches that also yet ask us to think what characterizes so many churches today. What should be their chief attribute? And what is? What should we aim to draw by? And what do we? Maybe you're visiting today and you're weighing your options for a new church home. Great. For what should you be looking in a church above everything else? Well, this church has a YMCA attached to it. That's convenient. Well, uh, this one is a virtual Disneyland for my children. Okay. Well, this one has a list of programs. A mile long. They'll keep us really busy. This one, man, the music, it is concert level. It is a rocking good time. Oh, but this one, this one, they, they, they baptized a thousand people. They didn't know. In a single day. And minus that last one, okay, whatever. But what we need to be discerning is whether these folks are a true home for Jesus. How do I do that? How do I do that? Oh, listen, listen. You can tell. You can tell where the word of Christ is a matter of life and death and eternity. It permeates the people. It saturates the services. All the flesh is left to the text of Scripture. Uh, There is a a, a desperation in their, their souls. Oh, please, Lord Jesus, speak. Just speak. Give life from the dead. Give life to us. Give life to me. Or, if you don't, we won't live at all. 
much less how we ought to. Jesus has a home where word muffling, familiarity, and flash are swept out the door in favor of an ardent faith and faithfulness to his word. And we glorify him then where we elevate and believe his word as a matter of life, death, and eternity. His prophetic office demands it. And if we would honor it, you and I must adjust accordingly. Thankfully, not without a test case. To drive it all home, picking up in verse 46. Look there at verse 46. Jesus has come to Cana. That's still in Galilee. And John notes that where he did his first sign, that's where he did his first sign, Cana, Galilee, water into wine. And there is a, uh, there's a Galilean official at Capernaum. And we're told he'd, he'd heard of Jesus. Right? You don't turn water into wine this day and age without it getting around. And so paired with whatever reports he'd heard from Jesus' time in Jerusalem, this man has a kind of faith in Christ, a kind of faith in Jesus, but at the present time, it's very peculiar. You see, this official is a father. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to make it through probably without crying, okay? So he's a father who loves his son, and uh, his son is ill. Even verse 47, you see there, to the point of death. Uh, The child is not long for the world, the time is short, and so the man is, here it is, very desperate. Jesus, won't you please come and do what you can do to heal my son? And that is how we always ought to be, isn't it? Desperate for Jesus to come in amongst us and do what only he can do. No doubt this man had done all he could to rescue his son. And at the end of the day, he had come to his limits. He could do no more. He turned over the world. And still, death continued its dreadful march upon his beloved child. Some of you know a few years back, my son got caught in an undertow uh, that swept him out to sea. And uh, I'm not a little embarrassed to say I couldn't do much for him. Uh, You see, I'm a very weak swimmer. Very I probably would have killed him and me, okay? Uh, I feel more limited in water than pretty much anywhere else in the universe. And uh, this was an evening tide, really strong. And if it weren't for Jenny, who's a great swimmer, and her brother, uh, who knows what might have happened. Okay, The, the desperation that I felt in that moment combined with my own inabilities was nothing short of primal. Uh, Even after he was brought safely ashore and we had him back, as it were, from death, I cried (laughs) uncontrollably throughout the night, terrified but thankful. Well, to our text, I imagine this man uh, is a devastated wreck. You know who never is a devastated wreck? Jesus. You know why that is? That's what we're going to find out. You hear what he says? 
The father has explained the situation. Jesus, my, my son is being dragged out to sea. He's being dragged out to death. And I, I cannot reach him. Will you go out after him? And Jesus says something that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> when you first read it, right? He says, unless, verse 48, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. What? <laughs> Jesus, can you just get going? You know, uh, the kid's about to flatline. Maybe save the lecture on true faith for a more convenient time. Or maybe this is exactly the time to clarify for everyone around the true objects of saving faith. I know a pastor who says this. He says, uh, "Walk to a wedding." Run to a funeral. Walk to a wedding, run to a funeral. Why? Because death has a way of sobering people to the things that matter most of all. And to clarify uh, what Jesus says, it's said to a crowd, by the way. It's said to him, but it's also said to a crowd that you there in the Greek is Unless you, it's a, it's a plural. So he's not just addressing the official. There is again a crowd there, but he is addressing him. Or better, he is testing him. My man, is your faith same as all the rest? Is it sign deep? Or is it something? You see, desperation has a way of wiping away any of the numbing effects of familiarity. Familiarity is not the issue for this man, but what about the flash? Is his faith in the Christ of wonders only, or is it faith in the Christ of the Word regardless? We each need to reckon right there. And it is not easy to answer it here. What we know is that the man hears what Jesus says to him and he proceeds. He's, he's not put off by what Jesus says. He says this, Sir, verse 49, Come down before my child dies. So he believes that even if nothing else can, Jesus is able to turn back death. That's incredible. And the issue is left, as always, then, to whether Jesus is willing to turn back death. What I want you to hear is that Christ is always willing to bless a desperate faith with His life-giving power and grace. But it is paramount to the point of the passage that we notice the extraordinary way in which Jesus heals this boy. The Father twice has asked him to come to the boy. He assumes Jesus must be physically present to restore him. But Jesus does not take one step towards that boy. Not one step. He just speaks. Go. Your son will live. And we read... Here it is. The man believed the Word. He believed the Word 
that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The mere word of Christ was more than enough for this desperate man. He has not even seen yet the effect of what Jesus had said. He doesn't know what, if anything, has occurred. He simply trusts the word of Jesus. He hopes in His Word above all the world. Nothing needed to be proven to Him. Christ spoke. And that was all sufficient. Oh church, let us hear this morning that Jesus does not need to be physically among us to be omnipotently present with us. His Word is as His presence. What elevation and honor we should give it then. By it, by His Word, Jesus communicates Himself in all of His glory, all of His power, all of His grace, if we would but have it so. And and what a testimony to this we find in the close of our passage. How before the man reaches home, his servants meet him with gospel. Good news. Your son is in recovery. Oh man. It appears it is only then out of a confirming curiosity that he asked them by the way when did the tide begin to turn? To find that it was in fact the very hour Jesus had said to him your son will We often say, familiar verse, the word of God will not return void. The same can be said about the word of Jesus, apparently. It's not only enough, it's efficacious. It's effective. Do we believe that by the true communication of His Word, Jesus still today turns back death, thwarts the enemy, gives life to life again, revives our souls, saves our souls, sanctifies our souls. Do we believe that? Beloved, matching up what Christ said and when He said it, with the hour of His Son's victory over death, how gladly, how attentively, how earnestly do you think this man listened to the Word of Jesus moving forward? Do you think he might have attended to every word that came off the mouth of Christ as a matter of life and death and eternity? Do you see what happens there in the end of verse 53? It says that He believed, and not only that he believed, but that his what? Whole household also believed. Like the Samaritans, they had come to trust in Jesus simply on the basis of his word. And yes, that does include the man's formerly ill son. Jesus apparently not only saved this young guy's body, 
He saved his soul, also infinitely more vital. The son here in the text lives twice over. Wow. It's not water into wine. No, it's more. It's life from the almost dead. And then life from the dead. Oh, how we should marvel at the work of the Word alone. How mighty and sure is the Word of Jesus. How we need to recover and believe that again. Here, in the Word of God, the Word of Christ, is all of heaven's might, and thus all the world's hope, But what will the world have to do with the Word if we have very little to do with it? If we've pushed it off, it's due perch in the church, as I trust we at the Mount will never do. If you're a Christian, you need to re-remember again this morning, Has not the Word of Christ done that second work, that greater work in you? Has it not raised your soul from the dead? And will we not then give all of our mind and all of our heart and all of our strength and all of our soul to the Word of Jesus? Will we not make it a matter of intentionality? To continually elevate it and centralize it and utilize it and build upon it and lean upon it. No matter whatever the storms may be. Whatever the falls we have. Whatever the fads are. Will we honor Christ? Will we be a home for Christ? Will we venture all on the word of Jesus? Our text teaches us there is no surer, no safer person upon which to venture all. J.C. Ryle, he once put it like this, he said, quote, He that by faith has laid hold on some word of Christ has got his feet upon a rock. What Christ has said, he is able to do. And so the sinner who has really reposed his soul on the word of Jesus is safe to all eternity. He couldn't be safer if he saw the book of life and his own name written within it. (laughs) And with that, dear friend, if all your life you've been dead in your sins, let me invite you this morning to take Jesus at his word. He said that God so loved the world that he gave him Christ to save it so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. He said that. And what's more, Christ has died and Christ has risen. That salvation is now achieved. So all you have to do to be saved is repent and believe Jesus. He said it. All you need to do is to venture your whole soul upon it and you will be saved. Dear ones, I'll leave us just with this, just a charge. May we give full honor to Jesus. Let's be a people that Jesus delights to call my home. My home. 
Let's elevate the word. Let's believe the word. Let's take Jesus at his word as if it were a matter of life and death and eternity. You know why? Because it is. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we do pray now that it would have full effect in every heart. You do your work by your word. That is all our hope. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.